is the Eminem Planet Podcast, episode 66. I'm your host, Joel Ambedon. Thank you for joining me on this never-ending quest to figure out how to teach better. And uh, thank you for joining me in 2022. Uh, it took a while, but we're getting started now. Um, I, I gotta be honest. 2021 hit me hard, and uh, we finished strong. We did a lot at the end. We were, like, going almost every week, and then it took a while to get back going again. And so it's, yeah, it's almost March, and we're finally releasing an episode. But... I gotta say, we're we're kind of we're gonna we're gonna start strong here, and I, I think I'm gonna do it a little bit better, a little bit better pace. Um, you know, doing it every week is maybe a little bit tough. Maybe we'll maybe we'll get going at that pace again. But for right now, we're gonna kind of ease in. I've been doing a lot of running lately, and rather than just you know jumping off and and going right into your mile pace or your 5K pace, we have you know Coach Bennett from the Nike Run Club says, you know, no, let's take for the like. 400 meters and ramp up to that pace or the next minute ramp up to that pace. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to kind of ramp up, but I got to say, we're kind of starting off with a bang here. So today on the podcast, I have Jeremiah Sims, Dr. Jeremiah Sims from Rooted in Love. And what's cool about the podcast is that these connections, these conversations that I get the uh, privilege of having uh, on the podcast where people get a chance to share some of their awesomeness. I had a chance to share, uh, Dr. E.J. Edney came on, uh, I think that was like in December of 2021, and we talked about the Impact Framework. Well, Jeremiah Sims is one of the authors of the Impact Framework, and so we get to kind of see and get exposed to this awesome resource that he has created and thinking about some of these things, like uh, talking about uh, anti-racist growth mindset and the tool that he's used and all these examples that he's created for this Impact Framework, and then even some of the programs he's created around this tool. And so... He's got a lot of things going on. He's got uh, just a great insight. He, as well as I, start thinking about the like, what does it mean to do this work when we start with love? And so I kind of like that. We kind of start the conversation there. So lots going on. Great conversation and probably too much for an episode. And, and I'm actually looking forward to having uh, Dr. Sims come on another episode because he has lots to share and he's got a lot of things cooking and, and we're looking forward to sharing some of that in the near future. So Without further delay, here's my conversation with Dr. Jeremiah Sims. Jeremiah Sims, how are you today? Thanks for joining me on the Ambedon Planet Podcast. I'm doing well. Um, so my name is Jeremiah Sims. I am. Uh, I just resigned as of yesterday. Um, <laughs> I was formerly the director of equity for the College of San Mateo. I'm super excited to uh, build community with you, Joel, and, the, and, 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 and your listeners. Um, and I'm just excited to talk about how we can think through love as praxis, especially with regard to really, really controversial, hard-won conversations around equity and justice. So I'm excited. That's, I mean, so yeah, it's a <laughs> kind of an, a, a, we're at a, what, an inflection point or whatever. We're at a, a critical juncture for you with uh, this, these new adventures. I'm sure we'll hear more about it. But love as praxis, let's start there. What do you mean by love as praxis? I think you just, I mean, I, we were talking a little bit before we recorded and I, I love hearing about, well, love hearing about love, but uh, thinking about, you know, putting this stuff into, into, into work. But what, do you, what does love as praxis mean to you, Jeremiah? So, so with regard to praxis, I'm just, I'm, I'm functioning from uh, the way that Polo Freire kind of operationalized and defined praxis, right? So praxis is, is procedural in some respects, right? So you have theory and then you try to put that theory into action. And then you reflect because John Dewey said something, right? John Dewey, arguably America's foremost uh, uh, educational philosopher said something that was incredibly poignant and incredibly powerful. 
So there's an adage here in America where we, we're led to believe that experience is the best teacher. But Dewey pushed up against that. He said experience is not the best teacher. You don't, in fact, learn from your experiences. You learn from reflecting on your experience. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. And so so that, you know, I found that to be the case in my life. Right. I grew up uh, in Richmond, California, which at the time had the highest murder rate per capita in the United States. Right. So I went through some things and I kept finding myself in the same situation over and over again. Situations I didn't want to be in. Situations that were potentially dangerous, um, even fatal. And so it wasn't until I, I got a little bit older and a little bit more mature that I started to reflect on those experiences and it became easier to avoid those things. So in my own real life, right, and, and, and this is true in pedagogy as well, but in my own real life, uh, I, I, I know that to be the case. And so love as practice, so I'm, I'm borrowing liberally from uh, the work of Professor Cornell West, right, brilliant uh, uh, philosopher, theologian, right? So Cornell West talks about Radical love. He, he, he says that mm-hmm. radical love has two primary components, uh, radical integrity and radical humility. And so what he's saying, that the reason that you need those things to work in concert in order to realize radical love is because there has to be a daily dying. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he talks about this kind of uh, this term uh, that, that Plato offered called paideia. Right. And it means a deep learning, a learning that is so deep that it transforms not just your cognition, but also your soul. But in order to arrive at that, there's a kind of daily dying that is necessary because that daily dying allows for a kind of daily rebirth. And so and so for me, um, and I know that we get somewhat philosophical, I'll bring it back to more kind of practical pedagogical <laughs> uh, uh, thought soon. But for me, the idea of a daily, so I, I, let me just take a step back, right? And I, I warned you all ahead of time and I warned you all I'm somewhat <laughs> tangential. I, like I can, I can bring it, it back. So, so Cornell, Cornell West, um, He's talking a lot about Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, right? And he has a phenomenal edited book called The Radical King that I highly recommend for folks who came out in 2020 uh, because much of King's work has been defanged and de-radicalized so that he could become more palatable, yeah. um, right? And so, and so that's a conversation for a different day. But anyway, he talks about when Martin Luther King, yeah, so I'm 46 years old now. I just turned 46. And you got to think about Dr. King's life and legacy. The things that he did, he changed the entire kind of environment, the topography of civil rights work, uh, all before he was gunned down, before he was assassinated uh, at the age of 39, right? So I'm like, what am I doing with my life, right? But there was Mm -hmm. so much going on um, for someone who was still in their 30s, who is now a youngster to me, right? And and when he was eulogized, right, when, 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 when Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was eulogized, there was only one line offered to, uh, as a kind of synopsis of the entirety of his uh, effulgent life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there was a sister who got up, uh, I can't remember her name right now, but she said, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. learned to die daily, period. Mm-hmm. You understand that? Like we have to sit with that for a second, the profundity of that statement. He learned to die daily, period. Essentially, the legacy of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King is that he learned to die daily. He tells a story in The Radical King um, how he was, you know, he was besought by fear. He was not able to move forward. Um, and he didn't want to move forward because his wife was being threatened. His baby daughter was being threatened. They had found a bomb at their house. Thankfully, mm-hmm. no one was hurt. And he was like, I can't do this anymore. And he said he went to the kitchen. It was 3 a.m. He had a cup of coffee. He put his head in his hands. And he just called out. He just called out to what he called the divine, right? He said he called out to the divine. And the divine appeared to him. And told him, if you are willing to fight with justice, for, for justice, I will be with you every the rest of your life. 
And he said, from that point forward, because here's the thing, right? If I ask most people, and I do this uh, when, I, when I'm able to and blessed to lead conversations with my, you know, uh, uh, colleagues, my brothers and sisters, what's the opposite of fear? Joe, what's the opposite of fear? What is the opposite of fear? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, excitement? Could be, right? A lot of times what we hear is bravery, right? Courage. Oh, courage. All those things, yeah, yeah. 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 All those things are also right. But there's one thing I'm looking for, right? There's a verse, there's a verse in the Bible that says that perfect love casts out all fear, right? Mm -hmm. And so the the Catholic, the original definition of the word perfect, right? The the denotation, not the connotation. It's just complete. It's not flawless. It's complete. It's lacking nothing intrinsic, right? So perfect love is a holistic love. It takes into account the whole being. And so that, that level of perfect love for me, in my experience, right, humanly, spiritually, pedagogically, uh, perfect love is what casts out fear. So Dr. King said that when the divine appeared to him and told him that it, he would be with him for the rest of his life, at that point, there was no more fear. That perfect, all-encompassing love, what Dr. King would later say is the love of Jesus, right, changed him in a way. It transformed him so that he was no longer afraid. It wasn't just courage. We talk about the courage of Dr. King and other civil rights giants like Rosa Parks, but it was that they were able to eschew fear because yeah. fear, yeah. right, disallows you Fear of death, right, disallows you from dying, right? That, that daily dying, that necessary dying, dying so that there can be a rebirth. And so, and so anyway, so this idea of radical love, because what Dr. King was talking about is building a beloved community. When people ask, how could you, because we got to think about, right, you know, in Mississippi, thinking about this, the bus boycott. The bus boycott was a huge undertaking. They didn't have the internet. Yeah. They couldn't email each other, right? <laughs> and these, these were people who instead of using public transit, walked miles to get to their jobs. Mm -hmm. People who had cars uh, were running their cars to the ground just so they could adhere to uh, uh, this kind of universal consciousness that had been that had been raised in the community, in the Black community at that time, right? And there were obviously other people across cross-racial solidarity was what made this possible. Mm -hmm. but, but the thing was, it was that they collectively were able to eschew fear, right? Fear, what if I lose my job? What if my car breaks down? And they right. continued to function in a way that allowed, because uh, uh, solidarity is unstoppable. I just want to be clear about that. Real solidarity is unstoppable. There's no force that has been able to stop it because real solidarity is impelled by radical love, right? And I, I want to be clear when I'm talking about radical love, I'm not talking about love that is nebulous or amorphous, right? Uh, because what Dr. King says is that is that power without love is reckless and oppressive. I'm paraphrasing. But mm -hmm. love without power is anemic, right? And it yeah. doesn't lead to any real transformation. And so the type of love I'm talking about is a transformative love. It transforms environments. It transforms uh, uh, kind of axioms, understandings, and it transforms people so that they can be the, their best selves. And so getting back to this point, radical, what is radical love as praxis? Radical love as praxis can look like something like having conversations around critical race theory, something that's salacious, that's con controversial, yeah, yeah. in a way that yeah, yeah. invites people into the conversation so that they go away understanding that they can make a mistake in that space. They could say something that they may get canceled for, right, and cancel culture, but it doesn't happen in these conversations because we're doing our best to speak the truth in love. That's one of the ways that radical love manifests itself in the work that I'm doing. I know that was a really, really long explanation. So I'll No, I love it. Well, I mean, even too, and like thinking like, you know, why do we need 
that. I mean, and it's, you know, something that most everyone can recognize is that we live in a broken world and we need, and we are allowed to be agents to do things about it. like, I mean, we're, we're basically led to be uh, actors in this thing. And so right. what right. do we, what do we do about it? Right. And so I, I love right. the, that you're the love as praxis uh, approach to it. Yeah. It's, it's, so what I've found, and I, you know, I talked about this with Joel earlier as I, they had a farewell party for me yesterday. Um, and, you know, I've been in this position for six years. I'm the inaugural director of equity. So I got to shape it in some respects. And, you know, everything wasn't perfect. I, there are things that I could have done better. There are things that, you know, uh, the, the college community could have done better. But I'm not leaving begrudgingly. I left in a good way. And I just, my primary focus is just to, uh, and I mentioned this to Joel, we have five boys from 12 to 2. And they're homeschooled. And then I have an opportunity to really spend some time with them. I looked at my 12-year-old the other day, and he has like a few whiskers, right? He started to develop oh. a mustache. And I don't remember <laughs> that coming in. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember that coming in. And I'm not going to miss that. Yeah, I'm not going to turn around, right? And he's 18 and trying to go somewhere for college, right? So I, I got I to gotta be able to spend some time with these guys now. And so that's my primary. Uh, that'll be my primary vocation. Uh, even in Frary, in terms of my primary ontological vocation is to be with these guys. Uh, and and just you know we're gonna we're gonna go deep on some critical theory, some critical race theory, right? Yeah. We'll have some good conversations. Oh, My yeah. kids are smarter than me. So 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 what I've what 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 came out uh, from these conversations, right? We had the chancellor there, right? The chancellor's over the three college college presidents there, and people thanked me uh, for being a patient teacher. Jeremiah, mm. thank you for being a patient teacher. And so for me, that is the manifestation of love as praxis. And I want to be clear, right? Spiritually, I'm a, I don't consider myself a Christian. I feel like, you know, Christian was a pejorative term and the Bible was only mentioned three times and it wasn't mentioned positively, right? Mm-hmm. Even even Paul argued, you know, don't say I'm of Apollos, don't say I'm of Paul, don't say I'm of Christ, right? Because it was divisive. I am an adherent and follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus is my friend. Um, he is my big brother and I believe him to be my Lord and Savior. So my work is always impelled by uh, my relationship with Jesus. He was the... He was the uh, uh, archetype for a kind of radical love because the Bible says that there is no greater love than this, that one would lay down his life for his friends, right? And mm-hmm. we see that with folks like Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, right? I'm not trying to put him on the same place, right? I'm not trying to be sacrilegious, but what I'm saying is that he willingly, as did Malcolm X, right? right? He willingly laid down his life for his friends because they knew that they were under constant threat. They knew that they would get to, get to grow old right. uh, because of the work that they were doing. Yeah. And, and well, it's too, we get to see, you know, the ultimate example of Jesus as a teacher. Yeah. You know, Bible, I get to see like, well, you know, we actually do get to see what he would do in our situation, like as a teacher. And when you talk about that, you're reflected as a patient teacher, you think like, man, he spent three years with 12 guys and, and still they, right. they didn't quite get it. And, but yeah. <laughs> was patient, man. <laughs> was, was patient yeah, man. yeah, for sure. Like, I, I feel like, you know, we've all encountered some Peters. I've been a Peter. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So our revelation <laughs> and the very next minute, Peter rebuked Jesus, right? Yeah, yeah. He recognized right. him as the Christ and Jesus told him what he had to do. He said, surely that won't happen to you <laughs> as, <laughs> as though Jesus didn't know. Right. And so uh, I always think about that. I've been, I've been Peter probably more often than I've been anything else, but that that's the whole thing. That's what was so incredibly heartening for me leaving that place. I feel like I'm leaving it in a better way. And I feel like I've grown considerably, because, you know, I mentioned this to Joe, when I first got there, 
I was, you know, I'm a, I was a fanatist, right? In graduate school, you know, Fanon argued that we, the only way to to get the oppressor to change, I mean, Franz Fanon, the only way to get the, the oppressor to change is to speak the language of the oppressors, right? And he was really kind of celebratory with the Mau Mau, right? Mm-hmm. Who waged guerrilla warfare uh, in Kenya. And so, you know, I, I feel like some of what he was saying was misconstrued, but at the same time, I understood it that way when I was when I was somewhat younger. So I came and I was ready for everybody to run with me. I wanted everybody to run with me. We're ready to run. Let's run together. And yeah, I realized, yeah. and Cornell West speaks to this, everybody in this society is wounded, right? You can either be a wounded harmer, because we know, you know, from the saying, hurt people hurt people, mm-hmm. or a wounded mm-hmm. healer. And so originally I was a wounded harmer, uh-huh. but I've since become uh, transformed by, by the grace of God to a wounded healer. And so that has been my work. I was funny. So I said this yesterday real quick. I, I got there and I wanted to be a catalyst for change. Right. But the STEM folks listening, I didn't fully understand and comprehend what a catalyst was, because when you look at the definition of catalyst, a catalyst causes some type of reaction or change, but it remains static. It doesn't change itself. You see what I'm saying? It yeah. catalyzes some type of reaction, but the catalyst remains unchanged. Uh-huh. And that's literally what I was. I was trying to catalyze change. But I myself was unchanged. I was not able to. Uh, I was not able to feel what people were feeling. I, I didn't realize that, especially my European American uh, brothers and sisters, people who were racialized as white in this country, were afraid to. There was a kind of fear-based paralysis, and they wanted to do good things. They wanted to do amazing things, but they were just so afraid of being labeled. Uh, as racist, right? Or mm-hmm. someone who is a beneficiary of white privilege or white supremacy and all these things. So they couldn't move forward. So they needed to be loved first. There needed to be an atmosphere of love. And there's always accountability with love. I want to be clear about that, yeah. right? I'm not just saying that people can come in and say all kind of crazy stuff. They can't. But as a facilitator, it, my role was to help them understand how we can move forward in the conversation. Absolutely. Well, and I like that. And, and just thinking about that as a, you know, someone who's stepping into a situation or trying to do some things. And and I'm, I'm going to play this off. Yeah, I just had an opportunity to teach at my uh, my uh, church uh, a few days ago or a few weeks ago. And we were talking about when Jesus feeds 5,000, right? And that's in uh, Luke. We're in, no, yeah. Mark, Mark. Um, anyway, that story. And you're like, okay, Jesus feeds 5,000. Well, he could have just like snapped his fingers and fed everybody, right? And everybody could have right. a steak dinner sitting in front of them. But he didn't do that. And what he did was he invited people into a community. He's like, well, first he let the disciples, they, they came and they actually shared, hey, there's a problem. We need, these people need yeah. food, but they don't get food. Like there's gonna be a problem. We should send them away, like try to offer a solution. He's like, no. And then he challenges them, right? He invites them in and challenges them. Say, hey, you feed them. No, right, you feed them. Right. And like, well, what do we, what do we got? Well, go. F-. And he's like, go find out, go find out what we have. And then thinking about not only the disciples are invited in, then the people who actually like are looking around and saying like, Hey, I got to eat. And I'm actually going to give up my only loaf of bread to this cause to see like, we can, right. can we actually feed everybody with this? Loaf of bread? No, we really can't, but they still had trust, right? They, they yeah. probably had fear inside them. Like you talking about before the fear inside, but they still had some sort of courage to give up their food for the, for the cause. And then, then Jesus brings the miracle about but it's only after inviting everyone to participate and like seeing how that it's it is probably that thing about what you're talking about like not just being callous but inviting people into these uh being that patient teacher and inviting people in and and bringing some sort of legacy because that is going to be sustainable because then it's not hey this was all jeremiah and now jeremiah is gone and but no having some sort of legacy behind and like having equipping people and being able to think for themselves and and continue this work 
That's the love blasting. That's awesome. Yeah, that's what that's what's so seminal about that. It's not just the miracle, right? Because it was just five thousand men, right? So it's considerably more people because they weren't oh, counting yeah, women, yeah. Children, absolutely, right? And so and so the thing that was so poignant to me when you think about you know kind of like this radical revolutionary pedagogy that we're trying to engage in in STEM ed, right? In humanities, the thing that was so incredibly poignant to me is he said, "You feed them." You see what I'm saying? They came yeah. with the problem. It wasn't just Jesus because Jesus was preparing them for a time when he wasn't going to be with them physically. Just like you said, that word equipping, he equipped, empowered, and encouraged them mm-hmm. to do the things that he was teaching them how to do because he could just do it. He could do yeah, anything. That's right. Yeah. Right? You could just snap so said, the fingers, man. <laughs> right. But he said, you feed them. So they got to see this problem solved through love, right? Because yeah. he took it and he blessed it. Right. And so I, I just always felt like uh, and that's always been my kind of pedagogical approach. Right. Is that is that when, when, when it talks, I, I don't remember the reference now, but when, whenever we get together, each one has right a hymn, a song, a spiritual, whatever it is. Right. Everybody has something to contribute. And that's commensurate with yes. uh, the kind of uh, uh, critical pedagogy. Right. That that Giraud defined based on Freire's work. Right. That everybody, in order to to adequately, not just adequately, but to to, to create a space where everyone feels welcome, uh, sometimes you have to be a teacher if you're a teacher, and sometimes you have to be a student. They have to be fluid, right? They have to be fluid roles. Uh, they can't be diametrically opposed a la the banking model of education. What has to happen is that you have to recognize that students bring a level of expertise. And oftentimes, as educators, we've been led to fear that. Right. Mm-hmm. We don't want to see any level of power or authority because we've been told that students are going to become anarchists if, the, if we <laughs> give them any room to take over a classroom, because, you know, after all, that's all they really want to do. Right. Yeah. Like that incredibly problematic. But what I've experienced when I've experienced the greatest successes, I taught middle school, high school, uh, community college, undergraduates, graduate students, professors. Right. The, the success, the common, the common uh, kind of thread that runs through all those is that when I create space for people to be whole humanly, uh, spiritually, uh, and academically, the conversations change. And so mm-hmm. that means that I need to stop talking so much. I used to have this problem, Joe, and I had to take this to the Lord always because I'm the only African-American. I was at the time, the only African-American male administrator on my campus mm-hmm. and one of the first. And, and so I always felt like I needed to prove myself, right? This was happening at a non-conscious level, but yeah. I always wanted to be the smartest person in the room, right? And so I would use these really highfalutin words, right? Like, you know, this is vicissitude, and you don't understand the transmogrification of the black nobody. And I'm just like, you know, I got my Berkeley education, man. I'm just <laughs> running with all this stuff, right? Nobody knew what I was talking about. I didn't really care. I just wanted them to know that I was smarter than them, yeah. right? And so the most kind of liberating, liberatory experience I had was when I realized, because uh, uh, there's this verse in the Bible in the Old Testament, uh, when Jehovah says, he says, the mistake that you made is you think that I'm like you. You're, you're talking to man, right? You think that mm-hmm. I'm like you. My ways are higher than your ways, right? And I realized, who am I trying to fool? You know what I'm saying? I'm not the smartest person in the room. I'm not the smartest person in my house. I know who, right, where wisdom <laughs> comes from. And so, and so that that changed me. And that actually freed me up to begin to really try to commit to, to love as practice. Once I realized I didn't need to be the smartest person in the room anymore, um, it was so liberating for me. And it was it took me a year to realize that this is not one epistemological moment, right? This was this yeah. happened over 12 months. Um uh, 
you know, especially in 2020, in light of everything that was going on, right? So this is a fairly, fairly, uh, fairly new uh, uh, development. I mean, I was building towards that, but everybody was calling me, right? Because I'm like, you know, people's unofficial racial healing coach, right? People have said that mm-hmm. jokingly. And so with, with you know, with, with, with Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Tony McDay, all the things that have been going on uh, for as long as we've been here, right, uh, right. black folks right, who came as, 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 as a, the first kind of liquid commodity, right, as, mm-hmm. as enslaved mm-hmm. Africans. I mean, you know, people just got to see these things, uh, some of them for the first time, and they were wrestling with white guilt, they were wrestling with, with you know, privilege and all these different concepts. And so I got a lot of phone calls. Yeah, uh, a yeah. lot of emails, a lot of text messages, not just from my colleagues, but from people from the church, right? People, yeah. people outside of the church and people just wanted to talk. And, and I realized that their souls were crying out for some level of healing. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't able to do it for everybody because I was trying to heal, heal myself. But there were times when I was able to see because, I, you know, I'll be honest, sometimes I was getting bothered. I'm like, everybody wants me to pour out, but nobody's pouring into me. Yeah, yeah, right. So eventually yeah. what's going to happen is I'm going to run dry. Mm-hmm. Right. And so and so and I did. I shut down for like two weeks, man. I couldn't be it. I couldn't be the father that I wanted to be. I couldn't be the husband that I wanted to be. I just depressed man, yeah. because this, you know, yeah. wanted disregard for for black life. Right? it wasn't mm-hmm. new, but just to see it over and over and over again, I just felt like, Lord, what's happening? You know, what right. I mean? because I believe that the, the so-called curse of him is not is not true anyway, but it's, it's over. Right, mm-hmm. because because Christ inaugurated a New Testament. That's the Old Testament. We live in the New Testament times, and so and so I was, uh, you know, I was distraught. If I'm being honest, and uh, mm-hmm. it wasn't until I had a breakthrough in prayer um, that that the Lord kind of delivered me from that malaise. I was I was, you know, I didn't know how I was going to go on. I was so, and it was because I was pouring out, pouring out, pouring out, and uh, and then I got filled up by my Lord and Savior. So I was ready to do the work again in earnest, and so it, I was avoiding. Uh, and I just may sound people crazy to people, and I'm not uh, for one minute suggesting that my beliefs are any better than anybody else. These are just my personal beliefs, right? Than the journey that I'm on. But I, 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 I could not, I did not want to talk to Jesus because I knew what was going to happen. I kind of wanted to wallow in uh, in what I felt, yeah. and so it wasn't until I actually had a what people will call a come to Jesus moment in prayer. Uh, that there was a real breakthrough. And I mean, I cried, I cried, I cried, I cried. And after that, uh, that's when this kind of, almost like an impartation, you know, I, love is the answer, but love as a force, right? Not the anemic love that, that Dr. King warns us against, but but love, because, you know, there's a verse that says that the kingdom of God has always been seized by violent men and violent men seize it. Mm-hmm. But that verse, that that word is actually force, Right. And so someone was explaining to me how that how that uh, that force is actually love, right? And I don't remember. I can't connect y'all to it right now uh, with the with the Greek, but but that love force, uh, like Dr. King talks about that, especially based on the work of Mahatma Gandhi, right? Mahatma Gandhi is he had something called Satyagraha, which is a love force or a soul force. That love force is able to actually transform uh, people. And people can transform the environment. And I'm just, I'm rambling now, but I just want to say this one last thing about, about this, uh, which is, which is really, really, really been a uh, kind of uh, epiphany for me is that 
So there's this question, right? And this is a quote from Abraham Lincoln, right? That Dr. King was talking about. He said, how do you, how do you eradicate an enemy? Mm-hmm. Joel, how do you eradicate an enemy? Um, take away all their resources, I don't know, um, or kill them. <laughs> Joel is going hard. You're going hard, Joel. So there's actually another way, right? The way that you eradicate, completely eradicate an enemy is to make them a friend, right? Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and only love makes that possible because love is creative. This is, you know, I'm paraphrasing Dr. King. Love is creative, right? Love is redemptive and love is transform, transformative. Right. But hate, on the other hand, right, hate only tears down. And so that's the way you eradicate. And I faced a lot of opposition. And some of the opposition was just based on my own personality. Right. My personality was abrasive. It wasn't for everybody because I felt like, you know, there's certain things that people should just know. Right. And 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 I was wrong. Uh, I was wrong about that. You know, I, it took me a while before I could admit that. But I was. And so and so, you know, people would resist some of the things that I was saying just because. I was saying it not because the thing was wrong, and so I took that personally. Yeah. But it wasn't yeah. until it wasn't until uh, I, you know, I experienced this freedom. I don't always have to be right, right. And I realized that if these people are opposing me, they're opposing the work that other people are trying to do. Then what I need to do is not remain in opposition. I need to figure out how to make them a friend. And so that is then, uh, you know, this, this idea of radical love as practice has you know, had all these different kind of constitutive parts, but that was one of the primary reasons because I didn't want, I didn't want to be the reason why the work didn't continue to go forward. Yeah. Just because of my personality. So I had to shift. Well, I love that. I mean, again, I'm doing poorly on my pop quizzes here, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, thinking about that, like building those, I mean, what building relationships. Right. And that's, again, we go look back to the ultimate example and that's, that's what he, I mean, building those relationships, trying to bring people closer. And that's awesome. So, yeah. you know, people are probably curious, like, okay, so what does this, what is the work that Jeremiah Sims does uh, with thinking about love as praxis? And, and, and the thing is, it's, it's, it's a lot. <laughs> and I've been, uh, I've been impressed looking around at, at, at your website and other things that you've been doing. And, and again, I've already been a, a beneficiary of thinking about some of this work. Cause I had EJ had neon who used the impact framework in order to right. think about uh, when we had a little podcast a few months ago um, kind of, that was based off some of your work. So maybe you know, maybe want to talk about that, that framework, the imp- impact equity evaluation. And is like a, it, it seems like that, that is, uh, you know, where this, what you've been talking about with love is practice is kind of like, here's a manifestation of it. Here's what it could look like in practice. I don't know. You, let you take it from there. Okay, so impact. So I'm big on acronyms. Uh, I didn't know that I was until I. Oh no, you're good at it. I like it. <laughs> so, uh, so, so impact is an acronym, and it stands for uh, innovative. And so I'm just going to go through the definitions as I, yeah, yeah. as I, as I, yeah. So innovative in this particular context doesn't necessarily mean new, right? I'm not concerned whether or not something is new. So we're looking at policies, practices, procedures, and pedagogies, right? So something is innovative if and only if it moves us away from a kind of white supremacist hegemonic status quo that uh, penalizes uh, poor ethno-racially minoritized peoples of color, right? So there's a lot going on there. And so I'll try to unpack it a little bit, right? So something has the potential to be innovative for, for with regard to this equity toolkit, if and only if it's creating opportunities for hyper-marginalized folks. And when I say hyper-marginalized, I mean, what, I, what, I, what I mean is this, right? I'm borrowing from local... Uh, 
local quants work at UC Berkeley. So you can be marginalized for being a woman in this society. You can be marginalized for being black, you can be marginalized for being poor, you can be marginalized uh, for being first in family to go to college, right? You can be marginalized mm -hmm. for being queer. So all these, all these different identity contingencies hold a particular kind of marginalizing power, right? But if you're all those things, right? If you're a clear black, black, queer black woman who's first in family to go to college, right? Then when they are, when they coalesce, when they're overlaid, these different uh, kind of minoritized and, and marginalized identity contingencies, there's an exponential marginalizing force. So that then is hyper marginalization, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and so you know, thinking through high, uh, intersectional analysis, we talk about intersectionality, will lead to a clear understanding of hyper marginalization, how these different identity contingencies coalesce. So something is innovative if and only if it's creating opportunities for hyper marginalized people to reach their fullest potential, both humanly and academically. Um, so the second letter M is measurable, right? You know, I feel like sometimes we overdetermine the role of data because we know what the data is going to say. Yeah, yeah. But we really love to talk about it. And we want to be data informed. And so, so that there's no issue with that, the second letter is measurable. Let's figure out. And sometimes you need to design the metrics, right? I'll give you mm -hmm. an example. At my college, we wanted to rename some of our parking lots because the parking lots are, are named after... Uh, uh, you know, dead white people. And so, uh, <laughs> yeah. and so just real quick, I don't think that there's any such thing white people. I know that that's crazy and that's, we'll unpack that at another time, but there are people who are racialized as white in this country because whiteness is a system, it's a political system. But anyway, we'll talk about that at another time. So what we wanted to do was change these parking lot names, right? And so it's a board policy. So individual college, we're three college district. You can't just change the policy. You have to go to the board, do a board presentation, pack it, all the, all the different kind of uh, gatekeeping things that we need to do. And so what what we what we did, uh, you know, because originally we thought that this would be, so what we know is that, especially for black students, right? Black male students, the primary determinant as to whether or not they're gonna do well in community college, just based on Luke Woods and uh, Frank Harris's work, is whether or not they feel welcome in that place, right? And so, you know, we want people to feel welcome as soon as we get to, because you gotta understand the College of San Mateo where I come from, uh, San Mateo is one of the most expensive places to live in this country. The college yeah, itself yeah. is on top of a hill surrounded by like 12, probably $15 million homes. Okay. Right. And so, so it's a really affluent area. And just to give you all some context, like a studio in San Mateo right now is going from $4,000 a month to rent. Whoa. Right? Nobody yeah, just yeah. paid a million dollars over asking price for a multi-million dollar <laughs> house. Right. And then it probably was cash because it's right. It's the it's the beginning of Silicon Valley right there. Mm. And so there's a lot of money there. And so anyway, so so we want to make sure that that our students feel welcome. And so we you know, we were looking at that particular policy through the impact evaluation toolkit. And we felt like it could be innovative to change these names. But then we got stuck on measurable because in order to go to the board, we need to have our ducks in a row. We need to have our data that suggests that this is something worthwhile for them to look at because it will lead to positive outcomes uh, with students and inclusivity, right? But turns out we never asked students. That was just our presupposition. So uh, we realized yeah. that we needed to take a step back and design metrics so that we can assess whether or not our, our presupposition was in fact correct. And so, and so that's important. That's why that's the second step. You may have an idea of something that's innovative, but are you able to make a compelling argument because you have the data, right? And so the, right. the, the next letter, P, is for purposeful, right? Is there a clear understanding that by, by changing this particular policy, procedure, practice, or pedagogy, uh, that hyper-marginalized students will know that we're doing this to serve their best interests, right? We want that part to be clear. 
after P is A, anti-racist, right? And we know from Kendi's work, which I don't agree with everything Kendi says, but he's a brilliant uh, scholar. But Kendi says that it's not enough to just be not racist. And I want to be clear, anti-racism, right, didn't come, didn't, wasn't birthed by Kendi. He popularized it in many places, but, you know, the boys, right? Sojourner Truth, all people, Frederick Douglass, they were doing anti-racist work, right? John Brown, folks were doing anti-racist work for a long time. And so anyway, mm-hmm. anti-racism, uh, it's not enough to be not just not racist. Right. Anti-racist, an anti-racist is someone who is functionally trying to tear down racism, right? Because you think about this idea, and we'll talk about this later, the four A's. One of these A's that leads to institutional malaise, right, mm-hmm. is ambivalence. So there are people who say, well, you know, I'm sitting on the fence about this particular thing, right? Black Lives Matter, I'm on the fence about that, right? But what happens is that when you sit on the fence, you necessarily fortify the way the fence. The fence is an obstacle, becomes more difficult to move the more people who are sitting atop the fence, right? So you got to get off the fence, either tear it down or get out of the way. But to be on the fence actually creates a greater problem, right? And so, and so we want people to, and this is especially true with our kind of reckoning around racial justice. And so we need people to be anti-racist. That means that you are able to identify, call out, and work to eradicate racist policies, practices, procedures, and pedagogies. Uh, The next letter is C, that's caring, right? We want to make sure that everyone's whole being is accounted for, not just the students that we want to serve, but even the colleagues that we're working with through this process. And the last letter is T, which is transformative, right? And we want to change. We want paradigm-shifting change. We don't want to continue to look at uh, the same problems the same way because we're going to get the same outcomes. We want to figure right. out how to shift the paradigm so that we can actually arrive at uh, prescriptions and remedies that ameliorate the issues that uh, that disproportionately impact poor ethno-racially minoritized students of color. And so I'll give you a quick example. So we looked at these two policies. We looked at, uh, I think, you know, folks uh, in college spaces will be familiar with this, but I'll try to explain it as best I can. There's Credit by examination, which is primarily the way that colleges function, right? You take certain level of exams and that's what right. determines your grade, right? Or credit for prior learning, right? And so so if you look at credit by examination, I would argue that credit by examination is not particularly innovative, right? Because it values and champions a kind of white supremacist epistemological understanding of what types of knowledge uh, knowledges are important, mm-hmm. right? Uh, certainly measurable, right? We know stu- from student learning outcomes is measurable. Is it purposeful? Well, that's a that's a tricky question, right? If it, if it is trying to, uh, as many would argue, right? Thinking about Jeff Duncan Andrade and Ernest Burrell and the art of critical pedagogy, folks would argue that there is a curriculum that is trying to espouse the grandeur of whiteness um, while simultaneously denigrating uh, what is considered to be the non-standardness of non-whiteness. Well, then sure, it's purposeful. But if we're interested in equity and justice and making real impact, then it's not, right? And so there's a, there's a kind of uh, uh, way to score those things. It's, it's certainly uh, not anti-racist, right? Because it is, it is championing a, a certain understanding of how knowledge is created and what level of knowledge and what kind of knowledge is important. Uh, it's not caring and it's not particularly transformative because it maintains a status quo that has been in place. Right. Mm-hmm. But credit for prior learning is altogether different, right? You can get credit for for uh, learning on reservations, right? You can get credit for learning in the military. You can get credit for learning Peace Corps. So what it does is it opens the aperture so that there are different kind of epistemologies that are valued. It's not just this Eurocentric epistemology. So it is, it holds the full potential to be innovative, 
when you juxtapose it. Certainly we can measure it. It's purposeful. It means that just because you didn't learn in this kind of standardized Western Eurocentric way, your knowledge still has value. It can certainly be anti-racist, demonstrating, and it has the potential to transform. And so, but people push back against it. Educators by and large don't like it. Uh, because it's more it's more work, not just because it's more work, but because they've come through a system. And oftentimes we think that the way that we've been taught is the best way for anybody to learn, right? And so they push back against the system. And we were talking about this yesterday. Uh, we have 30,000 on a between our three college districts, we have 30,000 students. You know how many, how many uh ex, uh exceptions we've given for uh uh credit for prior learning over the past three years? 48. Wow. 48. Wow. Right. So it's not even that big an issue, but there's so much pushback against it because it challenges the status quo. The only way that we're going to be able to make those types of shifts is have to have a kind of paradigm shift in the way that we understand and value education because it is from a particular epistemy. So anyway, so that's what that's what the, the impact grid is. So I just want to give a quick context. So in the state of California, our chancellor uh, for the California Community College System, I think we have the most robust community college system, not the best necessarily, but we have 116 community colleges. You know, because California has 40 million people. Yeah. And so, and so, uh, and so, you know, the, the chancellor's office, and I don't remember all of them, had six steps that every community that they wanted every community college to adhere to uh, a kind of equity audit. And this is birthed out of, you know, 2020 and the kind of racial reckoning. And there's a really, really good book y'all have to check out by Charles M. Blow. It's called The Devil You Know. And he yep. talks about how 2020 was, you know, a lot of it was like this kind of cosplay, justice cosplay. So there's some, there's a lot to unpack there. But anyway, all these things came out in 2020. And so the state chancellor's office put out these six kind of requirements for equity audit. We had to ensure that our curricula, uh, and and our policies and our practices were commensurate with anti-racism, right? That's the overarching thing. And so I created the impact grid independent of that, but it actually fit perfectly. And so the impact equity toolkit now is a is a is a is a tool and a training. So you can use it independent of me. You don't need me mm-hmm. for for it's a free tool. You can take it. You can run with it. It's self-explanatory enough where people have used it and come back in circles. But I do lead with a team of uh, amazing educators, impact training. And so what the impact training does is it is it positions people to train the trainer series. It positions people to go back to their institution or or their nonprofit or even in, in, in uh, private sector, go back and function as a kind of equity evangelist. And so what happens when you use the impact equity toolkit, irrespective of where you are in the conversation, when you start your APRI knowledge around race and equity, you begin to develop an anti-racist growth mindset. Um, you can't help it. If you do the work, you will develop an anti-racist, anti-racist growth mindset because you become more adroit at understanding and identifying uh, racism, sexism, homophobia, right? Uh, trans antagonism, all these different things and policies, practices, procedures, and pedagogy. So I just want to say a quick word around anti-racist growth mindset. So it's obviously it's building on Carol uh, Dweck's work, Professor Dweck's work around uh, growth mindset versus uh, vis-a-vis a fixed mindset. And when I was thinking about Dweck's work, I'm like, man, there's no example, stronger example of fixed mindset than a racist mindset, right? Mm-hmm. Because, because a racist mindset uh, will, will, cause you to believe that just because of some generally shared phenotypical characteristics, these people must all be the same, right? We, went, we don't even think that about dogs, right? Like you see, 
we know that all Rottweilers don't have the same temperament, but for some reason, people have been led to believe and have accepted the belief that these people are all the same and they share these characteristics, right? Some of these really problematic racialized tropes, problematic stereotypes with black men and a conflation between black men and criminality, right? People, people have actually believed these things, right? And so, and so what I wanted to do was work against that. And so the so anti-racist growth mindset holds that. So just real quick, a growth mindset is it views failure and struggle as opportunities to learn and to grow. And so I want people to believe in doing equity work and doing anti-racist work. You can fail, right? You can mess up. You can have a misstep, but you can continue to go on. And one of the ways that I speak to people about that uh, is to teach them how to speak the truth in love. So say Joel, Joel would do this. Joel makes a mistake and he microaggresses someone, right? As someone who has been in this space, I can say, Joel, you messed up. And I'm, I'm appalled that you did that. Right. Because I felt like you should, I feel like, Joe, you should know better because you so, you were someone who says that they're interested in achieving educational equity. Right. So I may be I may very well be telling the truth. But if I speak to Joe in that way, what will happen is that Joe's going to get to a point right where like, you know, what, I don't even know if I want to do this anymore because I can't mm-hmm. do anything. Right. I'm stuck. Yeah. Right. And I know, you know, many of my uh, European American brothers and sisters who have, who have been in that space. Right. Because they've confided that in me. Or I can say, Joe, listen, you microaggress. Uh, you know, and I don't want to minimize that. We need to think about a restorative justice model so that we can make amends for that. But I know your heart. I know that it was a mistake because I know how invested you are in this work, right? And so I just want you to know that I'm here alongside you and we're going to continue to do this work at a high level, right? So in only one of those two instances did I speak the truth in love because there's a verse in the Bible that talks about when you speak the truth in love, the byproduct of that is growth. Right. So what should happen when you speak the truth in love is that Joel should feel right. Using Joel as an example, should feel quickened and maybe even convicted, but not condemned. Right. Mm-hmm. Just convicted and understands that you continue to go on this work at the high level. And we're doing this together. And you're not out on an island. Right. Where you need to uh, uh, go through some type of self-asceticism. No, 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 no. None of that. You made a mistake. Everybody makes some mistakes. Let's figure out how we can remedy that and continue to build on it. And so it's really important when we want people to grow. And that's one of the things that we go through in this impact training is teaching people how to speak the truth in love. Because in can most I, instances, I, well, sorry, go ahead. I just want to jump in because like, I'm just going back to some of the things that you said before, like the you talking about, you know, how do you making, you know, making friends with your enemy or loving your enemy. Right. And like, so if, or, or even in a situation where, you know, I did something wrong, which it happens, <laughs> obviously. And, and having like, you could do it one of two ways. One is just to call somebody out without the relationship, just calling somebody out. And yeah, now someone that's maybe trying to do something gets pushed, like you said, pushed away and like, I, I don't want to do this anymore versus no, I'm in a relationship. I see it. I want to call it out because I care about you. And I know we're, we're working on this thing together we're trying to do this stuff together. And, and so by, if I push you away and if I just call you out without that relationship, then I, I've lost somebody to, to do the work with. Like we want to do this together. We're stronger together. Right. So exactly. I love exactly. it. I love it. Seeing the examples, Absolutely. the patient yeah. teacher too, right there as well. Right. 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 I mean, be patient with have... me, Jeremiah, be patient with yeah. me. Because I, because keep I keep pushing people. me. Right. But keep pushing me. Yeah, exactly. Because if I, if there, so that's the thing. And people oftentimes misconstrue it. It's probably because I'm not articulating it. Right. I'm still in both of those instances. There's a level of accountability, right? Yeah. But in yeah. only one is there accountability with the kind of radical love. And mm. that's the kind of accountability that helps people grow. 
right? And so, because in the, in the, in the previous example, and I was, I was that way for a long time, all I'm really showing is that I know more than you. You mm-hmm. see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. But in the second, in the second example, right, where I speak the truth and love, what I'm demonstrating is that it doesn't matter who knows more, we're in this together. And I need you in this work, right? And so that's part of the impact, right? So we think about impact, you know, my, my, my background training is out of rhetorician, as a rhetorician. And so we always like to play with words, right? And so impact is not just to impact a particular policy, practice, procedure, or pedagogy. Obviously, we want to impact the people who are going through the training, right? right? And so when I come away from these kind of conversations, I want people to learn. I want people to learn, but I also want people to feel love. Right. I want people to fill out. You know, I ask these questions when I do these talks and I'm like, how many of you all are? So I would ask people, you know, and I'll ask you, Joe, uh, when do you feel most loved? If you don't mind sharing, when do you feel most loved? Like meaningful time with somebody, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Meaningful where they you can kind of be your whole self and yeah, in, in some sort of relationship where you can you like show all your your bumps and bruises and and it's okay like that that's why i feel yeah awesome 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 there's no right answer this is it's totally personal do you expect to feel loved at work yeah i I mean i i mean given that have i mean probably i wouldn't have said that a while but given I have choice, I kind of have some choices. There's some privilege there. And like, I want to, I want to feel loved at work and like loved, appreciated, I guess is, is maybe I'm kind of putting those two together, but yeah. Yep. So when I have these conversations, that's great. Thank you. When I have these conversations with folks, it never even dawned on them that they can feel love at work. And it's super sad, right? Because we spend a lot of our waking hours at work, right? Away from our, our, you know, our, our familiar sources of love, Right. And so, and so, you know, well, especially teachers and teachers who are, uh, everything's in relationship with other, I mean, you, you'd hope. Yeah, exactly. It's, all right, sorry, keep going. No, 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 you're good. You jump in anytime. I'm talking a lot. So jump in anytime, but, but that's, that's the thing, right? And so, and so that's, that's what this work is about. So when people go through impact training, right, they learn how to commit to radical love as praxis. You learn how to use the tool. And again, the tool is not super complicated, right? Yeah. Really focused yeah. and you can use it. We're going to link to it in the show notes too. So everyone will have access to it. So awesome. Yeah. And so, but and the benefit is that you develop an anti-racist growth mindset. So Carol Dweck got us to a certain point with growth mindset. And then Professor Joe Bowler, also at Stanford, yep. uh, uh, continue to bring us further in her book, Limitless Mind 2020. And she talks about, you know, the example with the black London taxi cab drivers, mm-hmm. right? And so these guys are not necessarily ethno-racially black, but they wanted to drive for the black London ta- cab company, which is the premier cab company. And they had to take this test, a test that I would never pass because I could barely <laughs> come my way home, uh, where they had to, so this test was called the knowledge. They had to remember almost 130,000 streets and avenues because when you get in their cab, you can't, they, they can't use GPS. You need to be able to tell them, I want to go to a place. There's a big red... Uh, roof there it's kind of in this area and they have to be able to find it for you yeah right and so they're the best of the best right, right? the creme de la creme and so and so it, on average it took them uh four years to study for this test oh yeah and uh at 12 attempts before they got it right and so what they found and these are middle-aged guys right what they found is that is that when they were studying for this test right i hope i'm getting this right uh it's been a while since i read it their hippocampus actually grew 
right? They mm -hmm. use magnetic resonance imaging. And the, 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 the part of the brain that's responsible for uh, spatial recognition physically grew. So, right, this is idea of neuroplasticity. We started to understand that, that, that new neural pathways were being created with these guys in their 40s and their 50s. And then after they got the position and they retired because they followed them longitudinally, then the hippocampus went back to its normal size, right? When mm -hmm. the, as the size it was before. So what that means is that, you know, uh, we, can, we can learn anything that we want to learn, right? So if we want to learn to be anti-racist, and that's, that was part of the issue that I, that I was trying to overcome with my, you know, my brothers and sisters who are racialized as white in this country is that they felt like they just couldn't find an entry point into racial justice work. They wanted to, they just didn't know where to begin. Like, hey, Jeremiah, I can't talk about this stuff like you can. So I don't know. And I'm like, listen, you don't have to talk about it like I can. You can talk about it like you can, right? If you want to begin this work in earnest, you just start. And see, the thing about solidarity, I talked about the power of solidarity earlier. For me, solidarity is the manifestation of, well, I'll just, even better, I'll give you a quote from Cornel West. Cornel West says that tenderness is what love looks like in public. Justice, excuse me, in private. Justice is what love looks like in public. And I think that that justice as love in public manifests itself as a kind of powerful solidarity. So here's the thing. You don't have to arrive at solidarity before you begin to do the work, right? This is one of the things that the impact training highlights. You can arrive at solidarity by doing the work. You start mm -hmm. to do the work. You start to use the tool and, so, and solidarity develops. And so for me, the training is really, really profound. For me, I always enjoy when I get to do it. Uh, but for the people who come through it, that's one of the things that they point to. I've never been in a space that felt this safe before. Um, and, and that safety is what allows people to operate. There needs to be some discomfort around, you know, conversations around racial equity, racialized capitalism, white supremacy, because the people who have been victimized from it are certainly uncomfortable, right? But the thing is, my goal is never to leave people in that place of discomfort, but to help them figure out how they can move forward. Because this work has to move across racial lines, cross racial solidarities when we see the biggest shifts in our in our in our environment. You know, I know that there's some issues and some conversations that need to be unpacked around that. But if you look historically, right, the biggest civil rights movements, the things that have shifted uh the way that we understand, you know, justice work have always been been impelled by some level of cross-racial uh solidarity. Yeah. And so anyway, so just to go back to close the book on this on the training, the training uh, you know, usually it's a semester long training, right? So usually we work with folks over a semester because we want to be able to see, I know, Joe, I'm sure you're familiar with like design-based research, right? We're yep. not looking mm -hmm. at these kind of outmoded modalities. I want to see all the way through and how we need to shift the intervention so that we can see whether or not people are actually growing. And the good thing is people grow. We do it with a group of community college students in the Pacific North Northwest, and they have actually... Uh, created real change on their colleges by using the impact equity toolkit and that program. I told you, I really like uh, acronyms. It's called IDEAL. It's the yeah. Initiative Diversity, Equity, Anti-Racism and Leadership. We're in our third iteration now. And the work that we're doing there has is just, we're actually going to write a book on that with the community college students called Love is Praxis. Oh yeah, and so and so we get so what they do is they train for a full semester on how to use the impact equity toolkit. We have conversations around racialized capitalism, you know, white supremacy, all these different things, land acknowledgments as performative allyship. That's the conversation we had last week, right? And so and so anyway, and they put all these things because it's trying to replicate praxis. They put all these things into into practice, uh, and they've they've done some really amazing work. And so that's 
essentially, I know that was a lot, but that's that's essentially the way that the tool functions. The tool is to lead people to be reflective because again, you don't just learn from your experiences. You learn from reflecting on your experiences. And in doing so, you'll learn how to commit to love as praxis and you'll begin to develop uh, or strengthen or hone your anti-racist growth mindset. Yeah, I mean, so my... Uh... My kind of like personal mission philosophy and whatever you want to say is to lead people to love others through teaching. And so like you're you're doing this with this like ideal fellows program, like lead people to love like their community, college, lead people to love like the places where they're at through yep. using of this uh, impact uh, framework. And I just love seeing it. And and I know our, our time is limited here. I actually need to check out in a little bit. But so what I'm hearing is we have the impact equity evaluation that people can use that and then thinking about that and, and, and in practice and doing that in community, you kind of like are, are growing your own ability to have this anti-racist growth mindset. And you see the, and again, I, I can't wait for people to get a, to look at the link and, and see the framework, to, just the questions that are there that allow people to like, like asking these questions of themselves. And so like asking them a question and then having that, it's almost like little sensors are being flicked on yeah. so that when right. they look at other things, so like, you know, they, looking at going deep on a policy versus now now thinking about other policies or practices that exist within their own teaching or their own institutions or wherever they're at. I mean, it's, but I just love the idea of anti-racist growth mindset. That's, I think that's a pretty powerful uh, piece to add here. So um, just real quick anecdote. So there's a professor, right? So we normally look at policies. Policies are important because they inform how we interact with each other, mm -hmm. right? But there's a professor who gave extra credit, a chemistry professor gave extra credit to his class. Uh, and he asked them to vet his syllabus through the impact equity toolkit. Nice. And so nice. what what he shared coming out of that, he said, Jeremiah, there's so much to talk about. He shared a lot of data with me. But he said the thing that was the most profound, the most profound realization that I had is that my students' voices matter because if their voices don't matter and their lives don't matter, then my life doesn't matter. This is somebody who's been teaching, right? European American has been teaching for 30 years and he's coming to this realization now through using that tool uh, with his, with, with the students. And that's super brave, Probably, right? Yeah. That's our, we don't like to let go of stuff like that. Right. But he mm -hmm. gave them carte blanche to review his syllabus and he changed it. Right. Uh, uh, to reflect the suggestions that they made. Right. Even changing a plagiarism statement. Right. So that it wasn't it was no longer punitive. You, right. you, you see what I'm saying? And so that shows students what power could look like. Right. I just want to be clear, like we have all these policies and practices. And I always tell people this, like we think about like our mission statement, for example. Right. Our mission statements for every college has a mission statement, vision statement. They were read. Many were redone, revised in 2020. But your mission statements are empty if the budget doesn't match because your budget right. is actually your mission statement. Right? Yeah. So those are a set of policies that we need to be able to examine. So I'm, I know your time is short, so I'll stop with that. No, no, that's great. I mean, and having those examples. And so, but also too, maybe this is just uh, saying like, we need to have another conversation probably. In the sure. Yeah. Obviously I'm chatty, so. <laughs> no, no, this is good. But um, but I know we have the website. We're going to link to it, Rooted in Love. It's got act, and then we'll link to the, everything else that, that you've been doing. Um, anything just briefly to promote that besides yeah, going so to the I'm website, a, another thing? I have a new book coming out. Um, should be coming out in the next couple of months. It's finished. We just have to, to you know, dot some I's, cross some T's. It's uh, a... Yeah, yeah. With my buddy Jeremy Wallace is called the White Educator's Guide to Equity. Uh, teach teaching for justice in community colleges. We center community colleges. We're in that space. The kind of pedagogical uh, information being shared there is applicable across the board. It's not limited to community college. 
Uh, but then I have another book that we're working on now that I'm the editor for. It's around uh, system impacted students, right? Uh, students who have been victimized by the carceral system. And so uh, we'll post that on the website. I need to update, update that information. Uh, other than that, uh, there's just a lot. There's always a yeah, lot. There's a lot. I'm in the process of creating a, a REIJ, Race, Equity, Inclusion, and Justice Certificate Program for a school here in Northern California. So we're in preliminary nice. conversations around that. So I'm, I'm just having a lot of fun, uh, really trying to grow rooted in love and spend a lot of time with my family. Yeah, yeah excellent. Yeah, I just got done with uh, coaching uh, my youngest in his uh, basketball league and my other two yeah. uh, kids were my Co- my assistant coaches they're awesome great yeah you can't get that time back so yeah i'm doing it. that i'm doing that now I'm actually nice. my kids made their first shots last week because they're more athletes than they are athletes <laughs> but yeah great well that's beautiful and again uh you know what in time something comes out you want to ha- have another conversation we could put a little promotion out there again sure. we'll put there's so many links and so many uh things that were mentioned i kept kind of track and we'll, we'll put links to everything even some of the books like the carol dweck and the cornell west book and other things we'll put that all in the show notes but thank you so much for uh being willing to share your time with me jeremiah absolutely thank you god bless you and we'll talk again all right that's it for this episode of the amazon planet podcast so glad to be back in 2022 putting out some episodes and just so thankful for all the people out there that are listening and wanting to support. And so if you're looking for a way to support, you can always subscribe to the podcast. You can rate and review it. Those are always helpful for people to find the content. You can share it. If you heard something here, wow, somebody needs to hear this, especially there's this tool in the show notes. Again, you go to the show notes, uh, amazonplanet.com forward slash episode 66. If you think someone uh, could use this framework and it's really cool. If you haven't gone, go to the show notes, take a look at the tool that, uh, Jeremiah has developed and it's one pretty explanatory, but two, he also provides support for it. So anyway, and, and the examples he talked about are in there as well, but go ahead and, and look at the show notes, look at this. But if you know of somebody that could benefit from hearing from this stuff, that's the whole point. I share this cause I think it could benefit others. You hear it and you think it could benefit someone. So go ahead and share it. That's like, we we get smarter together. We get better together. Um, and yeah, kind of having that same growth mindset that we all, we're all going to get better together. So we can do that. So again, subscribe, rate, and view, do all that good stuff. You can subscribe to the Amateur Planet download, which, uh, we're, we're working on, we're still developing, but if we could build up that email list, then as we come up with opportunities and things that we think are worthy of sharing, we'll never fill up your inbox just to fill up your inbox. We'll make sure it's worthy of, of being uh, worth your time. So go ahead and go to the AmazonPlanet.com, and there's plenty of buttons out there to join the email list. You can do that. You can follow at Amazon Planet on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, or like the Amazon Planet Facebook page. You can also check out the Amazon Planet store. We just had somebody pick up some hoodies. So we got a uh, an order going right now. So if you're looking for a T-shirt, a Be the Good T-shirt, a Be the Good hoodie or something like that, go ahead and uh, check out the Amazon Planet store uh, or the Amazon Planet bookshop. If you, any of the books we mentioned, the links will be in the show notes. And all those purchases go to support the um, production cost of the podcast. And again, the links for all those can be found in the footer at AmazonPlanet.com. So thank you for listening to this episode of the Amazon Planet podcast. Thank you to Dr. Jeremiah Sims for sharing his time and expertise and his passion. Uh, thanks to Matt Mifflin for the music in this episode. Looking to get him on in your future too. And finally, thank you to all of you out there who are seeking to teach better and be the good in the world by investing in the lives of others. This world is a better place because you have decided to use the gifts you have been given to serve others. Thank you for all that you do. Peace. Peace.